I wanted you to ask you now to take a Bible and let's open it together to 1 Samuel chapter 16 in the Old Testament. If you didn't bring a Bible, we'd like to invite you to use our copy of the Bible. We're going to be on page 202 of our copy of the Bible or 1 Samuel chapter 16 in your copy of the Bible. I had a guy email me this and I, I thought you'd enjoy it, so I'd like to read it to you. It was by, it's from a second lieutenant in the Air Force. He said, I was traveling from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio, to Vandenberg Air Force Base, California, one spring, and the flight scheduled me for a two-hour layover in the St. Louis airport. I decided to hit the snack bar and bought a cup of coffee, a package of Oreos, and a newspaper. I scanned the sitting area for a place to relax. The lounge was crowded, but there appeared to be one spot across from a fellow in a military uniform of some sort. Great, I thought, another soldier. With my coffee on the right side of the table, my newspaper on the left, and my Oreos in the center, I sat down before I took my first look at the man opposite me. He was a Marine Corps Brigadier General, a mean-looking man with no hair, an honest-to-God scar on his forehead, and about six rows of ribbons, including the silver star with cluster. I was already committed to using the table, but not wanting to bother the general, I meekly squeaked out, Good morning, sir, before sitting down. I had begun the paper's crossword puzzle with the paper spread all over the table when I heard a peculiar rustling sound, much like the crinkling of cellophane. I looked out of the corner of my eye to discover that the general had reached across the center of the table, opened the package of Oreos, taken one out, and was eating it. Now, I did not go to the Air Force Academy, so I'm not familiar with how to deal with the finer points of military etiquette, such as what do you do when a senior member of another service calmly rips off one of your cookies? I realized that the honor of the Air Force was in a small way at stake here. I certainly couldn't let the general think I was a weenie. Besides, at airport prices, one Oreo is a significant fraction of the take-home pay for a second lieutenant. The only response I could make was that I reached across the table, opened the other end of the Oreo package that was facing me, took out an Oreo from my side, and ate it very thoroughly. There, I thought, I've shown that general these are my Oreos and he ought to go buy his own. Marines are known for many qualities, but subtlety is not among them. The general calmly reached out for another Oreo from his side of the package and ate it. Well, not having said anything the first time, of course, I couldn't bring it up now. The only thing I could do is to take another Oreo out of my side of the package and I ate it. We wound up alternating through the entire package. For an instant, our eyes met. There was tension in the air. But neither of us said a word. After I finished the last Oreo, they announced something over the public address system. The general got up, put his papers back into his briefcase, picked up the empty wrapper, threw it away, brushed a few crumbs off his uniform, and left. I sat there marveling at the gall of this man. A few minutes later, they announced my flight. So I finished my coffee, threw the cup away, came back and folded up the paper and lifted it up, only to discover there were my Oreos under the paper. (laughs) 
What do you think this general was thinking? Can you imagine? I love this story. Well, you know, things are not always the way they look, huh? <laughs> and, and that's just not true when it comes to Oreos. That's true when it comes to people. We're going to talk today about a passage where God tells us that He doesn't see people the way the rest of the world sees people, that things are not always the way they look, and that that has some enormous implications for our lives. And so, I want you to come along with me right here, First Samuel chapter 16. Remember the background now. The Israelites have demanded a king, and God gave them one, a guy named Saul. Saul was a miserable failure. He disobeyed God. God rejected him as being king. And here's where we pick up the story. Verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, for I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now the reason that Saul, I mean that Samuel took this horn is because you would anoint a new king with oil and so that's what God was telling him to do. And he said, I want you to go to Bethlehem and you're going to anoint one of Jesse's sons as the new king. Of course, the problem is he didn't tell him which son. What do we know about this guy, Jesse? Well, remember, Jesse, we know, is the grandson of a fellow named Boaz and a woman named Ruth. And we talked a couple weeks ago about how these two people, Ruth and Boaz, a godly man and a godly woman, met and married and set up a godly family. So this is a God-honoring, God-fearing family that God is going to take his next king from. What's also interesting here is the location of Jesse's family. Their hometown was Bethlehem. That's important because later on in the Bible, God's going to tell King David that the Messiah is going to be a direct descendant from him and that because of that, the Messiah is going to be born in his, David's, hometown of Bethlehem. The prophet Micah said, chapter 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, out of you will come forth one who is to be the ruler over Israel. When did Micah prophesy this? Well, it was 700 B.C. when he said that. So the Bible accurately predicted the birthplace of Jesus Christ 700 years before it actually happened in time and space. And this is only one of over 30 prophecies like this in the Old Testament, each of which is at least 400 years old. Some are more than 1,000 years old, talking about the life, the birth, the death, the resurrection, and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And all 30 were fulfilled exactly the way the Old Testament says they were. The mathematical probabilities of that happening are off the chart. And I should stop here and say that if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ in a real and personal way as your Savior, and you've wondered whether the Bible is really even trustworthy, whether just a bunch of men put it together, or whether or not it's just a hoax or just a money-making scheme somebody came up with, I'd like to remind you that 30 prophecies of over 400 years old that came true exactly the way they said they would, that's not a hoax and that's not a game and no man can do that. That means something supernatural is going on and God said in Isaiah chapter 40, I am the Lord, there's none other and I predict things that haven't even happened yet and tell you about them so you'll know I am the Lord and I'm running the show. 
So if there was ever any doubt in your mind that God was real, that the Bible is the Word of God, and that Jesus really is who He says He was, I'd like to suggest to you, I've got 30 prophecies, including this one of 700 years old, that all came true exactly the way they said, to say, indeed, the Bible is what it says it is. Something to think about. Well, let's go on. Samuel goes. They call in the family of Jesse. Jesse brings all his sons. In they come. And I want you to pick up. Look with me down at verse 6. And when they arrived, Samuel looked at the firstborn, Eliab. And he said, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Man, the guy looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, he's a stud. He's a beast. Man, this is the one. And God says, eh, nope, not the guy. Verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his outward appearance, Samuel, or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things the way man looks at things. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What a great verse of scripture. Aren't you glad God looks at the heart? Aren't you glad that the smoke and the mirrors of the world don't affect God, they don't impress God, that God sees right through that stuff right to the heart? Aren't you glad that here in Washington, Mecca of smoke and mirrors land? Aren't you glad that God does, is not, all this stuff doesn't impress God? God sees people's hearts. God looks right through the outward appearance and sees what we're like on the inside. And Eliab, this guy, may have been a giant on the outside, but God looked at his heart and said, but in his heart he's a midget. He's not my man. Well, they brought the next son in, a guy named Abinadab. God said, nope. They brought the next guy in, Shammah. God said, nope. They brought all seven sons in, and God said, nope, 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 nope. Well, now they're out of voice. This is a problem. And so, look at verse 11. He asked Jesse, Samuel did, are these all the sons you've got? I mean, this is it? And, and Jesse said, well, he said, there is the runt. We got a little runt, but he, he's out there with the sheep. We didn't even bring him in. I mean, he's just a little squibbly old little thing. Samuel said, you call him here. So they went out and they got David and they brought David in. And the Bible says when David came in, verse 12, he was ruddy, meaning he had red hair and he probably had freckles, probably looked like Howdy Doody, if you remember Howdy Doody. And he had a fine appearance. He was handsome in his features. Do you know this is the only physical description of David anywhere in the Bible? This is it. This is all we know about it. You say, well, why won't they? Why don't they tell us more what David looked about? Because what David looked like on the outside didn't matter. Didn't matter. Remember, God looks at the heart. And as soon as Samuel saw him, the Lord said to Samuel, rise and anoint the runt. This is him. Samuel's like, what? You, this is him. He's a little, I mean, he's a little old, tiny little thing. He was barely a teenager. That's him, God said. And so Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And Samuel went back to his own house. You know, there was probably never a more unlikely candidate to be the king of Israel from an outward point of view from an outward perspective than David. I mean, I'm sure in his yearbook, he was voted least likely to be king if there was such a title. Because he was short, he was little, he was nothing. He was a runt. He had red hair, no offense. And freckles, no offense. But this is not what you look for when you look for a king. But don't forget, they had already picked a guy that looked like a king. Saul was head and shoulders bigger than everybody. He was a beast. 
He was a monster. They said, this is the guy. Look at him. How could you be that big and not be a good king? And the man was a total failure. Now they pick somebody God does. It doesn't look much like much. But he's going to turn out to be the greatest king the nation of Israel ever had. Well, that's the end of the passage, but it leads us to ask a really important question. What's our question? Thank you. You know, I don't know if you ever have people say to you what I'm going to tell you. They say, they say this to me all the time. I'm walking with a Christian somewhere or watching television with a Christian. And they'll, say, they'll see somebody on the television or while we're walking who's powerful and rich and important and, and, and poised and energetic and charismatic. And they'll say to me, you know what? See that person? If God could just get a hold of that person, oh man, if they ever gave their life to Christ. What, it's hard to believe. What God would do through them. You ever had anybody say that to you? About somebody? You know, it's easy for us to think like that. But the truth of the matter is, this is usually not the case. It's usually not the slick and the impressive and the powerful and the humanly charismatic people that God chooses and God uses to shake the world. Outwardly, David was the most unlikely candidate in town. And yet he was the one God chose. Because God sees people differently than we see people. And God loves to use unlikely people in unlikely ways to accomplish unlikely things for God. God loves to do that. Listen to what Chuck Swindoll said. He said, when we look for people to admire, when we choose our models and our heroes, we want the beautiful people, the brilliant people, the successful people. We want the best and the brightest The superficial impresses us much more than we'd like to admit. But God says, that's not the way I make my choices. I like to choose the nobodies and turn them into somebodies. Swindoll goes on to say, and that, in a nutshell, is the story of the life of David. Now, folks, this just isn't true of David. This is one of God's consistent operating principles down through the ages. Think about it for a moment. God chose a a, a crestfallen, defeated shepherd living on the backside of the desert, out of mind, out of sight to everybody in the world named Moses, and used him to bring to its knees the most powerful empire on the face of the earth. Moses was a nobody. And God chose a ragtag bunch of Galilean fishermen named Peter, James, and John. They were uneducated, unschooled, untaught. And God used them to set up the early church, which then went on to change the entire Western civilization. They were nobodies. And God chose a poor shoemaker living in London named William Carey to become the the, the father of modern missions which over the last 200 years has increased the population of heaven by untold millions of people. He was a nobody, a shoemaker. And God chose an overweight, insecure, uncultured teenager with only a third grade education. He didn't know how to punctuate. He didn't know how to capitalize. When he wrote letters, he just wrote the words all together. And God chose this man and used this man to lead over one million people to a decision point for Jesus Christ all by himself. His name? Dwight L. Moody. In fact, in 1874, when Moody was in England, carrying on the greatest revival services that England had seen in a century, one august British churchman came up to him and said this. He said, Mr. Moody... 
He said, this work that you're doing is plainly of God. For you are so uneducated, so untrained, and so uncouth, that I can see no relation whatsoever between you and the work that God is doing. Now, I think that's an insult. But it's a British insult. You know, they have a different way of doing this thing. But I think that's a British insult. And you know what Moody's response was? May it ever be. May it ever be. May people always think it's God and not me. Moody was a nobody. In fact, when Moody first became a Christian, he went to church in Chicago and volunteered to work in the church. They wouldn't even let him work in the church. He was so uncultured, so uncouth. They said to him, we can't, well, you're an embarrassment to this church. And they only would let him work with children. Moody was the first children's pastor in the American church because they gave him no choice. And he would go out on the streets and round up people who were the children of drunks and destitutes and homeless people. He'd go Sunday morning and collect them while their dad slept off their drunks from the night before, bring them to church, and led these kids to Christ. They were called Moody's Ruffians in that church. And many of those men went on to be industry and government leaders for Jesus Christ. He was a nobody. And even in our day, we see how God has used a simple, humble man, not a brilliant man, not a wealthy man, not a powerful man, just a simple, humble man like Billy Graham to change the world. Folks, if people would put you in a lineup and not pick you out as the most likely person to make a difference for God in your world, don't worry about it. Doesn't make any difference what you look like on the outside. God doesn't care what you look like on the outside. Doesn't matter if you're not rich. Doesn't matter if you're not educated. Doesn't matter if you're not uh, charismatic in your words. Doesn't matter if you're not powerful. God doesn't care about that stuff. God loves to use nobodies. And if you qualify as a nobody, you are eminently qualified for God to use you. Because if you look down through the centuries, the people God has always used to make the biggest difference are not the big shots. He loves to use nobodies. Now, why does God do that? Why does God love to use nobodies? Let me answer the question. Turn with me, if you would, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. To 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First letter Paul wrote to Corinthians church, chapter 1. Okay? Look at verse 26 with me. It's page 807, if you're using our copy of the Bible. Page 807. Why does God like to use unlikely people? Well, I'll show you. Look at verse 26, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 26. Brothers, Paul says, and sisters, think of what you were when God called you. Okay, how many of you were big shots? How many of you were powerful people? How many of you were, were big muckamucks? Well, maybe there's a few of us here who qualified as muckamucks, but not many of us. Most of us weren't those kind of people. Not many of you were wise by human standards, Paul says. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. There's a story told about Queen Victoria of England, who was, by the way, an outstanding Christian. And she was one time asked what she felt was the mo what she was most thankful for in the whole world. She thought for a moment and she said, I am most thankful in the whole world for the letter M. The person that was asking her went, what? The letter M? What are you talking about? She turned to this passage and she says, you see here where it says not many noble? She said, I am just so glad it doesn't say not any noble. Because if it said not any, I wouldn't be on the way to heaven. I'm thankful for the letter M and not many. 
But you know what, folks? She was an exception. There are very few big shots that ever come to Christ in our world. Very few. And God, that's okay. Because God loves to take nobodies. He doesn't need big shots. Look at the rest of the passage. It says, but God loves to choose the foolish things of the world. People like us. To shame the wise. God loves to choose the weak things of the world. People like us. To shame the strong. He loves to choose the lowly things of the world. People like us. And the despised things. To nullify the things that are. Verse 29. So that no one can boast before him. Here's the bottom line. If you take somebody that's powerful, somebody that's charismatic, somebody that's rich, somebody that is outwardly impressive, and they go out and do something, guess where the glory goes? Guess where the credit goes? People give it to them. And God says, that's not what I want happening. I want to make sure if there's any credit to be given, I get it. Look at verse 31. Therefore, as it's written, let anybody who plans to boast, if you're going to give out any glory, then give it to the Lord. And God says, when I use a guy like Moody, then that British churchman was right. It couldn't have anything to do with Moody. The credit's got to come to God. When I use those old fishermen like Peter and James and John, nobody could give them the credit. It had to come to God. And God said, that's the way I want it. That's why I love to use nobodies. Then I get the credit. So folks, if you're a nobody, guess what? That's great. You're a prime candidate for God to use. But let me say one more thing before I close, and that is God didn't use David just because he was a nobody. He was a nobody with a heart. And you see, just being a nobody doesn't make you useful to God. You've got to be a nobody that has a certain kind of inside. So what was inside David's heart that so impressed God that God said, I'm going to choose you as the king? Well, could I close by telling you what was inside David that made him a nobody God could use? Because God wants those same things in us so he can use us. I got five real quick to give you. Number one, inside of David, number one, David was a person, number one, of spirituality. Even as a teenager, David knew what it meant to have a deep and an intimate relationship with the living God. You say, how can you be so sure of that? Friends, he wrote the 23rd Psalm, okay? You can't write the 23rd Psalm if you don't have a walk with God. The guy wrote the thing. So he obviously knew what it meant to walk with God. David was a man in the Bible. Two times the Bible says about him that he was a man after God's own heart. The Bible never says that about any other human being. Twice it says it about David. He was a man in whose heart God was number one, without rival, completely on the throne. Here was a man who cultivated his relationship with God, and God was absolutely the central focus of this man's life. Friends, above everything else in your heart that God's looking for, if he's going to use you, this is what he's looking for. The eyes of the Lord, Second Chronicles 16.9, the eyes of the Lord go back and forth throughout the whole earth looking for people whose hearts are completely His so that He may show Himself mighty on their behalf. What does God want in your heart more than anything else in my heart? He wants a heart that's completely His. Number two, David was a person of humility. You know what happened right after Samuel anoints him as king? He said, yeah, I know what he did. He went right down to the printer, said, I want new business cards. I want you to take Shepherd off and I want you to put king elect on my business card. No, no, David didn't do that. You know what David did? If you read the rest of the passage, he went back out to take care of the sheep. 
And can you imagine this? They come in, they anoint him as king, and the guy turns around and says, okay, is this over? Because i got sheep out here i got to take care of. And went right back to the sheep. Say, why would he do that? Because the man was a servant. The man was a humble man. He had a worldview that said his goal was here to be a servant of others. And no matter who pours oil on his head, he was still a servant to others. God's looking for people with the same attitude. People who are willing to serve, not big shots. God doesn't need big shots. He needs servants. Number three, David was a person of godly conviction. David was a person who knew what it meant to believe something strong enough that he was willing to stand up for it. Thank God David was not politically correct. Thank God for that. David was a person who knew God and believed some things were true and were willing to stand up and defend those things he believed was true. You remember the first time he ever ran into Goliath? Out there on the field, he's just bringing some cheese up to his brothers, and here comes Goliath out there for his morning taunt. And he says, hey, all you people over there, makes fun of them, and they're all cowering over on the other hill. And remember what the first thing David said? David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that you let him stand over there and make fun of the armies of the living God? What are you people ought to go over there and chop his head off? And they all went, we vote for David. We vote for David. You do it. We're with you. God bless you. David was a man with some conviction. He said, there is a living God. You can't let somebody insult the living God like that. What's wrong with you people? And you know what? He not only had conviction, but he had enough courage to go out and stand up for it. He went out in the valley and did exactly what he told them they ought to do. God's got enough wimps, friends. God doesn't need any more wimps. God needs men and women with some conviction and some courage. Fourth, David was a person of integrity, a person of honor. You know, later in his life, when Saul was chasing him around trying to kill him, he had two opportunities to kill Saul. I want to read you about one of them. He snuck up on Saul along with his general, Abishai, and they found Saul fast asleep. And Abishai said to him, hey, kill him right now. He's trying to kill you. Kill him, and then you're the king. Look, verse 8 of 1 Samuel 26. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear, David. I promise you, I won't need two. I'll get him the first time. David said, No, don't do that. I'm not going to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as the Lord lives, the Lord will deal with this when he's ready. Either the Lord will come and, will, and, the, and take him and the man will die or he'll go into battle and he'll perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and he wouldn't let Abishai touch him. Now, this was a man of integrity. He said, look, I don't care how bad I want to be king and I don't care how bad this man is chasing me around. I'm not going to commit cold-blooded murder. That's it. It's not happening. If I never get to be king, I don't care. I'm not killing this man like this. There was integrity in this man's life. Fifth and finally, David was a man who knew how to trust God. Did you hear what he said here? He said, look, Abishai... When God's ready to deal with Saul, God will deal with Saul. God will either have him die of a heart attack, or God will have him die in battle, or something else will happen. But when God is ready to deal with this man, God will deal with him. I am not taking matters in my own hands. I am not going to do this in my own wisdom and strength. I am going to wait on God. And when God is ready, God will do this. I know how to trust God, Abishai. And I'm going to trust God. Five things that made David... The man of God on the inside that he was. 
He was a man with a deep personal relationship with God. Christ was number one in his life. There was no rival. Number two, he was a man of humility who saw his role in the world to serve. Number three, he was a person with some convictions. He was willing to stand for those convictions. Number four, he was a person of integrity and honor. And number five, he was a person who knew how to trust and wait on God. Hey, in terms of his outward stature, he might have been a midget. But I'm telling you, on the inside, this guy was a giant. And what God wants you and me to understand, friends, is as Christians, as we become people of inward godly character like David, God is saying, he doesn't care how we look on the outside, it doesn't matter. He will use us beyond our wildest dreams if we'll be those kind of people. You say, well, Lon, how do you get to be this kind of person? I've got three quick steps, and I'm out of here. Number one, you've got to aspire to be this kind of person. In other words, you've got to stop worrying about how much money you have or how much power you have or whether you know, you're going to end up with your name in the paper. And you've got to stop making those your target and make these things your target. That you want to be these five qualities in your life. Number two, we need to be praying and asking, depending upon the Spirit of God, to produce this in us. This is supernatural change. You just don't become this kind of person because you aspire to it. God has to do a work inside of you and me to transform us into these kinds of people. And God will do it if you'll give him the chance and let him. And third and finally, we need to immerse ourselves in the word of God. Where are you going to learn how to have a deep and personal relationship with God? It's in the word of God. Where are you going to get deep convictions about what God says is right and what God says is wrong? You're going to get them in the Word of God. Where are you going to change your worldview to seeing yourself as a servant? What's going to cause you to do that? It's the truth of the Word of God. Where are you going to come up with a, a, an understanding of the kind of integrity God wants you to have? You'll get it from the Word of God. And where are you going to learn to be the kind of person who trusts God and waits on God instead of running out and doing it yourself? You're going to learn it from the lessons built into the Word of God. Friends, you and I cannot become the people on the inside that David was without the Word of God. It is the power that transforms our lives, that changes our worldview, that reprograms our software. You say, Lon, that sounds too simple. Friends, why would God make it hard? It's not hard. David wasn't made out of different protoplasm than you and me. But when he sat on the hillside night after night after night, the man aspired to something and he prayed God would do it and he meditated on the Word of God and look what happened to him. And if you'll do the same things, God will do it for you. You don't have to go sit on a hill with sheep, but you do have to aspire and trust God and be in the Word of God. Well, what does God want to do with your life? Friends, God wants to use you to his, for His glory. And he will. You don't have to be a big shot. But you and I do have to be on the inside. People like David. Or at least in the process. At least on the journey. And may God help you do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of studying the word of God today. Thank you for reminding us that how we look on the outside does not matter to you. And that if we're not big shots and we're not famous and we're not charismatic leaders and if we're not brilliant or wealthy or powerful, it doesn't make any difference. You can still use us. In fact, 
You'd love to use us. But we have to have a heart. A heart like David's. A heart that's usable. So build these five qualities of character into us, I pray God. Help us to aspire to them. Help us to trust the Holy Spirit to do a supernatural transformation in our hearts. And help us get into the Word of God so that we might have the resources you've given us to make the change happen. Use us for your glory, we pray, Lord. And we're happy to be nobodies and let you get the credit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.